You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 51. In part one of my conversation with John Buchanan, we talked about John's unique coaching style, the way he began his career with the Queensland cricket team, and his transition into the top job. We talked about the lessons he learned coaching players who were not just among the best the game had ever seen, but who also carried the burden of full-blown celebrity. In this episode, part two, we talk about John's legacy in Australian cricket. I ask him if his place in the game today matches the contribution he made as national coach. We talk about the way we choose top-level coaches in Australia and about the changes that are taking place in the game of cricket. Where is it all headed? And finally, I pin John down on one of my favourite topics, the schizophrenic nature of Australian cricket selections. I hope you enjoy part two of my conversation with John Buchanan. So you did all those things. You did win that Ashes series. You won the ICC Champions Trophy for the first time. Then you went to that World Cup, your very last act with the Australian cricket team, and you won that World Cup too. So you retired, having been the coach since 99. You retired in 2007. You had won 70 tests from 91. As I talk about, the best winning percentage of of any big-time coach, 76.9%. You had won 26 test series. You'd only lost two, and you'd only drawn two. And amongst that included the world record winning run in test matches. I just spent a summer watching the cricket and I didn't hear your name mentioned once. It's almost as though you are still outside the cricket establishment. Is that fair to say? I don't understand how someone with that record, and and I intuitively knew your record was very good. But when I started doing this research, I just dawned on me just how good your record is. And when I juxtapose that with the figure that looms within Australian cricket, it doesn't match up. Hmm. Well, look, I think uh, a few things there. One is, as a coach, you know, part of the philosophy is to make yourself redundant. So my job, apart from occasionally, uh, where I'd bob my head up, or be asked to speak when we're not performing well, my job was not to promote myself. My job was to make sure that the team was going well. And, and so that's where, I guess, my media presence, if you like, or my public presence was, apart from they might flash a camera on when you're sitting there watching the game was pretty low and and I was very happy to to be that because that was my philosophy that was the way that I approached my coaching secondly I think there's still a very poor recognition in cricket about coaching about the role of the coach uh, unless where, of course they're a, they're a famous ex-player who then well, gets lots of plaudits of course or but I think you know if we talk about Buff Lehman at the moment who who is a you know a famous player or a very 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 well performed player I mean Buff has a different a persona than me. I mean, Buff is a larger-than-life person. He is a very promotable person. He's a very good face for Cricket Australia in that regard. So so he's been, and good relationships back into the Channel 9 and Warney and whoever else it might be, although they had a few tips here and there. So a completely different approach in that regard. 
the uh, yes, but with increased power, I think coaching. Yeah, I mean, it's still as you said. I was only the third coach. So really, coaching had only started about mid eighties, mid to late eighties in in an international sense. Even within a domestic sense, I mean, when I was playing in the late seventies, you had former players who would be down there at the nets, but they weren't coaching. They they were almost mentors, you know. So coaching is still, in a sense, relatively new within cricket as opposed to all the footy codes. And, of course, we see in the footy codes it's the coach who controls the game. In cricket, we've got to understand that the game stops every ball. So there's a set play every ball. And, therefore, who controls the set play? It's the captain. It's the person who's on the field. Go into all your short-duration sports. Apart from if you get a penalty or a bit of a stoppage in play, maybe the captain then has some impact on a decision. More often than not, though... They don't. Individuals and, and make they roll decisions. On, yeah, yeah. Individuals make decisions or they roll on the game plan. Yeah. But the way the game is impacted is by the coach off the field who will make changes, reads the game, how's the game plan going, sends messages out and so on. Mm. So it's a completely different role. Cricket, I think, has the capacity, and I think it should, to elevate the role of the coach. And it can do that through, I think, T20 cricket, where I think that game should be probably run more off-field than it is on-field to help speed up the game and just allow players to deliver their skills. And there should be a whole range of different changes that brings the coach in, so like substitutions and so on. Do you think they should be mic'd up? No, I don't. I don't. Is that a big topic of discussion within cricket? I think it should be a, at a much higher level discussion than mm. what it is at the moment. But I, my own view is, one, as we've seen this season where some questions have been asked and there's been some responses given, and some actions taken on the field that, that almost lead to what you'd say match fixing. Right. Yeah. In my opinion. So that, uh, you know, a player might say, well, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, are you? That's interesting. If I was a bookmaker mm-hmm. and I know that people actually don't get all the information that you and I have yeah. here in Australia, great. I'm now going to change the odds on yeah. this next ball or this next over. We saw Peterson uh, uh, being... Um, uh, fine for his comments about an umpire. He was asked a question. What mm-hmm. do you think about that decision? Worst decision I've ever seen. Yeah. And so he should have been fine. Yeah. But firstly, the question probably shouldn't have been asked. So where does the broadcaster fit in this? You know, so there's an incredibly interesting balance between what's entertainment and what is the integrity of the game. It does make for great entertainment. But you went off on a very interesting topic. I was actually talking about should the players be mic'd up to each other from the coach, not necessarily the commentators for us at home, but to each other in 2020 cricket, it's a very quick game, lots of decisions to be made. If we're elevating the role of the coach and that's the game in which to do it, miking them up would be a great start. It would, it would. And which, of course, was the Hansi Cronzian, Bob Wilmer uh, They did try that, didn't they? A long time back, which was, I thought, very, very inventive, very innovative. But, of course, it sat quite without the bounds of the way cricket should be done. So it was banned. But I think uh, potentially... This is where you can move down the track of augmented reality. So these days, I mean, basically you could wear, you know, Google glasses and Google glasses now can actually have the game plan up here on your lens that's actually projected or sent through via wireless or Bluetooth or whatever it might be Mm. onto lenses. So I think potentially in the future, T20 cricket, which I think is the entertainment version of the Mm. game, is a place where a lot of this could be experimented with. But I think... My premise for that is a little bit about entertainment, but it is around actually changing the way the game is played and it brings in the role of the coach in a completely different way, which I think should occur. Look, I, I had a feeling you would brush off my question about 
the size of your figure in the game compared to what you achieved. I, I do think it stands as an anomaly, though, now that I look into it. That leads me into my next series of questions. Our tendency in professional sport, not just in cricket, but in professional sport, to have coaches who are ex-players. I mean, it takes a pretty special talent for someone to become a professional cricketer or rugby league player or union or AFL, and then to expect that that same person also has the talent, the separate talent that it takes to be a high-level coach because they're separate skill sets. Yet, the selections would suggest that we're finding that same two sets of skills in the same people over and over again. Or are we just drawing very naively from a a really shallow talent pool? Mm. I think the talent pool is narrow, and I don't think it's just in cricket. I sit on um, AFL uh, mentoring panel where we are given, or yeah, given basically two or three young AFL coaches who who sit below the head coach level, but aspire to be a head coach. And I think it's very very smart move from AFL because, again, going back to this notion of coaching. The more that we can improve coaching, because coaching is a fundamental part of how that game is delivered, if they can improve their coaching depth, therefore it means better coached players. Better coached players should mean better on-field performance. Better on-field performance should mean stronger competition. Stronger competition means more interest in the game. More interest in the game generally means more investment or more support. So it's in the interest of the game as a whole to look past what we're doing at the moment. Well, that's what I that's what I think. I mean, again, I had, you know, I've, I've only a couple of times been asked by Creed Australia to come back. One was first year when I was sort of an ambassador coach, but then wasn't asked back again. That, that and boggles then, my mind that then, you have little contact with Cricket Australia. Yeah, well, and then um, I, I was asked to, to look at some of the 17s coaches who were up here August last year and how they operate. But one of the things that struck me, and I still think it's pretty much the same, and you're alluding to it, about players moving to coaching. Here were a young set of coaches, presumably reasonably technically skilled because they've only just sort of finished the game, but they've moved from playing into coaching. You were a teacher. Consider the when you were the student at school being taught, you left school, I presume, without a gap year and went to maybe a teacher's college or a university, got your degree. And then you step straight back into teaching students. It seems to me that where we're missing here is some sort of gap years where you move completely outside of your sport. Because as I said, I'm very keen on getting people outside the dressing room. But in a coaching sense, as I influence these young players coming through, and young players can be 16, as I said, up to 35-year-old kids that I had to deal with, what else do you bring to the table? What are your life experiences? What are your biases? You know, what's your knowledge? So it seems to me that most sports, in a sense, are not understanding one who the talented coaches might be. So there they are. Now we'll give you some coaching skills, but really, what we want to do is keep you on the list. But you're going to go out of the game for two or three or four years, whatever it might be. Get some life experience. Get some life experience. You know, like we've got lots of contacts out there, mm. lots of networks, lots of sponsors. Yeah. You might want to do some travel. You might want to do a degree, whatever it is. And we're going to help support you through all that. Yeah. But, you know, then you still make a decision whether you want to come back to coaching. Yeah. Because if you do, we now know we've got a person that we identified early, has now got some broader skills, and now we can really develop those skills and improve that person as a coach who is then going to really help the influence on younger people. 
But, you know, go away, as you're saying, become a more well-rounded person, get a bit of life experience. We won't forget about you. That's a great system because, as I said earlier, all too often we assume that the people, those individuals who had great talent as a player are also the same individuals who have great talent as a coach. And, and we know that's not necessarily true. And to a large extent, it undermines the value of teaching, the art of teaching. Teaching is not about telling war stories about when I played for Australia. Teaching is its own craft and its own science and discipline. And I'm assuming that not everyone who used to play cricket for Australia is, is fantastic at that, yet we would give most of them a job as a coach if they applied. Quite remarkable to me, and we do it in, in so many sports. I spoke to Steve Hooper, the, the Broncos trainer, episode one, actually, so 49 episodes ago. We talked about this very thing, and he said, you're right, because he gets it. He's an ex-teacher as well. He said, but the one thing that someone who didn't play in the NRL or play for Australia or play Origin will never have is the respect of the dressing room. It's really hard to get the respect of the dressing room because you and I can intellectualize it all we like. But in the end, these are guys who are 20 years old or 25 years old. They want to be have someone standing in front of them who wore the baggy green cap. Is, is that part of it? It is part of it, but I think that's still the art of coaching mm. because I never put myself up as this expert because I never had that. I never put myself, as I said, put myself in that position to do so. However, within the room, there was that expertise and that was the important part of coaching. It was about actually knowing that there were so many people in there that had so many different experiences that should be tapped into. And there are people that, that sit outside that, you know, that we could bring in any time that we wanted to. So to me, that was never... I never saw that to be an issue. I always saw it to be an advantage, always an advantage. So you mentioned Warren before. I thought one of my real advantages there was, yeah, always to keep them unsure, guessing, where is this bloke coming from? Yeah, just to keep them off balance. But also it was an honesty check. I mean, I it was always really that little person on the shoulder just tapping into your conscience often. And it was around yeah, trust and honesty and your teammates and, and so on. So it was always, apart from everything else that we're doing, I saw that, that as a really important role, that I live with integrity. And that to me was around honesty and trust and basically delivering what you're going to deliver and delivering your philosophy and sticking to that. And if I, had comp if I compromise that, then that's where I run the risk of fracturing relationships, whether it be with a warn distant relationship or, or some of the other guys that were really close. If I don't keep delivering that, then yes, coming back to your Steve Hooper's question, I don't think I'd be respected in the dressing room at all. But because I didn't play, I was respected as a, a coach and what I was bringing to that dressing room. It's very interesting. You know, you, the idea of going into that dressing room with these guys that had these profiles, but on the very rare occasion that I meet someone with a profile, it always strikes me. I don't know why it's such a surprise. They're just a normal person. And they would have had all of these, a range of different personalities. In some ways, I'm sure there are guys who are with a really high profile, are, are pretty simple people who have an immense talent that has thrust them into this strange world where without that talent, they might be living a very quiet, narrow, little, naive life. There must have been people like that in the change rooms and tapping into them and trying to get them to think at a higher level just because they happen to have this talent for throwing a ball really well or keeping their eye on the ball and hitting it well, it's almost a, a contrast. Yes, but I, again, I um, don't see it too much different to any sphere of life. So if I'm, if I'm a, a tradie and I'm running my plumbing business, 
hopefully I'm a really good plumber, so therefore I've got some technical skills. But if I'm actually developing my business, my plumbing business, then I want to bring on some really skilled plumbers. I want to bring on the best plumbers I can bring, you know, because they're going to really deliver some some really good services, either by the way that they think and come up with different ways of doing things, or they're quick and very efficient, and I therefore I can potentially bump my price up because I'm really providing value in there, and therefore my role now as a the plumbing supervisor is changing. I'm not a plumber anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could do a little bit, but but really I'm trying to grow this business, you know. So I just think that's the same, you know, I'm a stockbroker, you know. We've got a range of people that are on the floor and then supporting people who are on the floor or delivering their products. So I want game changers, you know. I want a game changer in my stockbroking firm. Now I understand that that means that person might be offsiding other people because they just get on and the world's about them and, and so on. But that can bring success to my business. Uh, where it becomes interesting as as a leader of that business or as a coach of a sporting team or the plumber, is you're always doing that sort of cost-benefit analysis of everything in your business, including people. So the benefit of having a game changer in there is I'm winning business and you know profits are, are good, not always because of that person, but that person is really part of that and influencing maybe some of the other people around me to up their service delivery. But if results start to wane either that individual's results or the overall results then benefit and cost become closer together and as i mentioned before generally your game changers are those very very selfish people they are those conditional team players and so when things are not going so well they really begin to tear your business apart they begin to tear your team apart and so it it is as that cost benefit begins to come a little bit more into parity then to me, they're the first people that you look at moving on, replacing. Um, hard decisions. Hard decisions, hard decisions. 2003, albeit that it wasn't our decision, but Warney was obviously um, ejected from the World Cup. For because, a year. Because of diuretics. That um, vanity creeping into his life again. creeping into his life again, albeit that he said it was his mum that made mm. him do it. Or she said, <laughs> he probably didn't say it, but she did. So, But he never came back into that one-day side. We, knew, we didn't let, and it was Brad Hogg who stepped up, and 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 oh, I think that's in Australian cricket. Uh, a lot of people have never really recognised Brad Hogg for what he did because he played that World Cup, and then through the next four years, and then into uh, into the West Indies. So he's unplayable. They weren't picking him. Hmm. So and he's still going. He's yeah, amazing. He's right? amazing. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to say there is that that cost benefit analysis for everything you do, but in, importantly people. You're chasing your game changes and you need them. There's no question. Pending whether you want to climb Everest or not. If you don't want to climb Everest and you want to stay at a certain level, well, maybe sometimes you you put up with what's going on and that may mean that person stays, but you'll lose other people. But you feel, oh, well, I can replace the other people. I just can't replace the game changer. Well, for me, if you're climbing Everest, if that person's not actually delivering you on their game-changing ability, they're no longer any use to the team, and I'd rather get into Brad Hogg, who was an incredibly good team man. Good team man, just great for the team. Yeah. Very skilled, wanted to learn, just wanted to be part of it, wanted to put on the baggy green. And of course, Warney, that wasn't all bad for Warney. He said it extended his career. He had a year off when he was getting a little bit older, and then he didn't play one day as and and had a, another few good years yes. as, as a Test player. So it wasn't all bad. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Team Guru, helping leaders grow, teams perform, and organizations communicate.
We talked earlier, and one of my pet topics about only picking ex-players as coaches, we seem to do that off the field as well, where our selection panels are made up of ex-coaches, our administration largely ex-coaches, but of course we've got Pat Howard running the game in Australia at the moment, another guest on my podcast, I might add. So he's a bit different, and he, of course, copped a lot of flack from maybe someone who you copped a bit of flack from as well. In your time, someone who who sees those roles should be ex-players. Tell me what you've seen about selection in the last decade or so. I know that on a mate's level, so I'm talking mates texting each other while we're watching the game, there's a lot of frustration out there in Joe Public Cricket Lover about what we see as philosophical contradictions in the way they're picking teams. When they, they give an a reason for selecting a player, then they might give the opposite reason for not selecting another player. There seems to be very little consistency. Yet let me give you some numbers that probably won't surprise people. In the 1990s, the Australian cricket side gave away 34 new caps. Guess who the first player to get a cap was in the 90s? Test cap. Test cap. Gee, when Shane Wanderbo? 91. 91 yeah. Against so. India. First player in the 90s was Mark Wall. Mark not Wall. long before Steve Wall. Mm. So 93, 34 caps in the 90s, 28 caps in the 2000s. Probably not that surprising. You were coaching a very, very good side. First player of the new millennium to get a, get a cap in your time. Who was he? Well, uh, I know uh, Scott Muller and uh, Adam Gilchrist debuted in 99. So into New Zealand. Was there a, a debutante there? Probably was. Can't remember. I'll put you out of your misery. Simon Kadic was Simon the first Kadich, player yeah. of this millennium yeah. to get a cap. 28 in the 2000s. We are seven years into the 2010s, 37 new caps. If we keep up this rate of new caps per year, we'll have 52 by the end of this decade. And interestingly, in the 90s, if we talk about players who they've obviously made a mistake, played three or fewer tests, nine in the 90s, seven in the 2000s, Already, 14 of those players who've played three or fewer tests this decade. If we keep up this rate, there'll be 20. They might bring them back. Yeah, they might bring them back. <laughs> They're right. They're not closed out yet. But you, you get the sure. point that I'm yeah. making now. Yeah. And there's obviously the the asterisks. We had some really great sides back then. We're not we're not having the same success that we're having now. But there seems to be a lot of churn. There seems to be a lot of gut instincts or gut decisions being made by selectors, oh, this guy's got no numbers in shield. He hasn't done anything in any anywhere, but we think he's a goer. And they pick him and, and try him for a while. And I can't remember, you know, I, I probably can't name the last test side. I'd go close. I can name the test side that you coach still today in the same way as I can name the Wallabies from that era, but I can't name our last test side because it just changes so quickly. Am I a cynical old fan or is there, is there some truth to these concerns? Oh, look, I think there's some truth to your concerns. I think one of the other things that has to be factored in there is that T20 really came in in that period. It, it's in the really 2010s. got Yeah, it's really got its ascendancy in that period. So I think that does have some impact upon selection. But two things, I think. I think there's been a lack of leadership for a long period of time, and leadership's a broad term, but leadership to me is that the senior people, so you mentioned a Pat Howe before, so high-performance director, coach, as in Darren Lehman, and uh, head of selectors, which was Rod Marsh. Until very recently. Until recently, and now back to Trevor Holmes. And probably your captain, vice captain, and maybe one or two others. I don't think that they've actually clearly sat down. And and as I was saying before, for me, here was the picture, this is where we're going, and this is how we're going to get there. I don't really think that's occurred. And if it has occurred, then in all that group, they're not talking to each other. 
Because there's so, some inconsistency, right? Totally. So I, I don't think that's been laid out, how this Australian team are going to play, and that'll be across all formats. Because, again, across all formats, if that's how we're going to play, these are the skill sets we need, therefore these are the type of players we need, and, and so on it goes. So I think just lack of leadership, lack of vision is driving that. The inconsistencies uh, make for a very fragile environment sometimes because players are going to play Coming themselves yeah. as opposed to playing for the team because I've got to get a result. Yeah, if I don't survive. get a result, I'm out of here. Mm. And, of course, there's no guarantees that anybody should stay. Mm. But if you went back to even though we had really good players, it was a very, very supportive environment, very yeah. cooperative, collaborative environment, which we obviously nurtured and fostered, but it was driven by the players as well. It surprises me, sorry, that ex-players don't get the value of that team environment. You know, having players come in in and out of the side, and as we've said, they're ex-players making these decisions. What have they forgotten about being in a team and the value that being confident and supportive and having that consistency actually improves the performance of everyone? Have they forgotten that or have they got some other agenda? Many of those selectors, maybe not so much current ones, but you mentioned Mark Waugh. Up until, I think, Stephen Moore started as captain and then I was coach, I think it was very much, I mentioned the Matthew Hayden example before, I think it was very much you look after yourself right. first. Okay. You know. So maybe they didn't experience so, that. So they, they didn't experience that, they yeah. didn't know that, and it would have definitely been the case in your state sides, no question. Right, okay. Um, I'm surprised So to even though you play as a group, yeah, we're a group, mm. fantastic, but in the main, you make sure you look after yourself first, you know. Cricket is, as they say, a, an individual sport masquerading as a team game. Mm, dressed up in a team game. So, so what I was just about to say, when I was director of cricket in New Zealand, one of the first things I did was reflect on that. And to me, even though I, I work well with the selectors, I just believe that they were extraneous voices. I didn't want them or need them around the team because even though we might talk, I know when they're going to talk to a player, however they deliver the message, one, they haven't really talked to me, and two, what is the message that they're going to give? And then third, as we know, those who've got children is, you know, if I'm not getting what I want to hear from dad, then I'm going to go around talk to mum, and then if I can't get that, well, I'll play them both off against each other, you know. So so for me, one, it was about decluttering the amount of voices in and around the team. This is when I was New Zealand director. So I got rid of the selectors. and You ruffled and, some feathers over there in New Zealand as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did, and so in the end that was – you know, part of my demise over there. But we we got some things done. We got some things achieved. Or we, we're seeing some results now too. But my view was, and again, I guess I'm elevating the role of coach, the people who know most about players are the ones who are coaching them. So therefore, why would you now instigate another level of people who spend little time watching the players... Group? But even close, they don't even get close to them. And then they're making decisions basically either on numbers or what they see on the field. Now, obviously, observation on the field is pretty important. And obviously, numbers are still pretty important. However, if I'm actually trying to build a long-term system here and, and trying to eradicate any inconsistencies of messages that are going on, and Cameron White had come out recently and, and spoken about that, then I want to get as close to the, the best information I can get and to me it's the coaches now whether it's the coach of the women's team whether it's the coach of the men's provincial team whether it's the coach of you know a short form of the game if they've separated out and then coaches of your 19s and your 70s they're the people who very clearly are as close as you can get to the player so that's what I did over in New Zealand we instigated a national 
Decluttering uh, program. Decluttering national selection manager, his job was to actually get the information from the coaches and then feed that back up to the head coach. Ultimately, the head coach, or should I say any coach, but if you're running an international program, the head coach is responsible. I want him or her to be responsible for their program. They run it, the buck stops there, and so on down it should go. So if I'm running the state program, I'm responsible, I'm accountable, buck stops with me. So the less voices that interfere in that, the better. It's amazing that that's not how it ran before that. It's amazing to me when I learn about the way selection still works in Australia, that those selectors are actually so distant from the side and that a player trying to get in the side or trying to get back in the side actually gets a lot less information that we might think they would be getting. They they don't get the call every time they're not picked in a test, but say, hey, you, you're, you're close. That that 100 you scored last Shield game was really good. We need you to do this and this, and, and then you'll be knocking on the door again. They don't get that which I, I always assumed it would be more sophisticated than that, which is a surprise. Would you have assumed that as a, as a supporter, as a fan? Well, I, I guess you'd assume that, uh, but having been in the system for such you know a that. long time, I know that that's, that's the case. The other thing I noticed, I, I, love, I love the commentators, the BBL guys, you know, Mark Ward, Ricky Ponning, Gilchrist, they're all fabulous. I love the nine guys. I'm not part of this band that, that bags the commentators. I think they're all terrific. But I have noticed in, in some of them, they have a very firm opinion of things, of subjective things. And once they've made their mind up when they're talking, that they, they, they've made their mind up. These are successful guys who are used to being, you know, the idols of many people. They've had a lot of success in life and that sort of comes across when they're speaking as well. And I imagine it comes across when they're making decisions as selectors too, that I've got this idea. I think I'm right. I'm, I know I'm right. I can't be wrong. Is there a lot of ego in those roles as decision makers? Well, I mean, I think really what you're talking about is, is people's uh, biases and, and, and their upbringings and so on. And um, same in the corporate world, same in any world. You know, you have a view on what uh, almost a successful person would look like or a stereotype of what um, success means in my business and how, how do I deliver that, how do people deliver that. So that really does give you some sort of narrow view, as you say, or, or a, a, a biased view. You know, it might not necessarily be narrow, but it, it's certainly a picture of what, what that is. And we all have that. I mean, I have that. So that's why I think it's so important to um, have people who can actually look in from outside. That You mentioned Pat Howard. Um, part of the reason of his selection was that he came from a different sport and, and would look back into this sport and then ask some questions and maybe challenge some things and get some things changed. And some business experience as well. And some business experience as well. Um, so I think that's really important. When I was coaching, I was always keen to try to bring in a, a coach who I'd respect their opinion uh, into my environment so that they could actually ask questions and challenge me. And, and of course, we, we then employed one. We employed an American baseball coach to come in and give us some skill, young. Mike Young. Um, uh, but it, importantly, he was a good coach. So, so he would challenge players. He would challenge me on, on why are we doing it this way now? Some questions were good, some questions weren't so good, but it was important that we had this sort of almost person on the balcony looking down onto the dance floor and, and, and asking questions. When I hear these guys speak with their very firm opinions, I always think that they're not philosophers, are they? You know, Aristotle said when, when kings are philosophers and when philosophers are kings, uh, I don't think that's the case in Australian cricket all the time. Hey, I want you to settle a bet for me. I've got a bunch of mates. We talk all the time about cricket and all but one of us is up in arms about this Marsh situation. There's an outlier who thinks the Marsh boys are amazing, especially Sean. But the rest of us think, look, I, I love Sean Marsh. When he came on the scene 10 years ago, I wanted it to be true. 
because I loved Jeff Marsh when I was a kid. And he's this guy who's a beautiful batsman. But 10 years later of starting and stopping in and out of the test side, it seems as though there are some players for whom they look for an excuse to pick them. And there are some players for whom they look for an excuse not to pick them. And the Marsh boys have had a ride on this at the selection table like no other players in Australian cricket. Would Daryl from Gympie, who had the same shield numbers as, as Sean Marsh, whose dad was a sheep farmer, would he have been given the same chances that Sean Marsh has been given? Probably not. But I think um, what you're saying is it points to the earlier question. You know, if... Australia had a, a very clear picture of where they wanted to be and how they're going to get there. If Sean Marsh, uh, when picked initially, had the skills, most of the skills, and they believe they could improve some of those skills, but had a skill set that would take them there, then that's who they should stick with and they should find out whether they're accurate or not, you know, and they've got to give somebody a, a decent ride at that. Um, but I think with Sean Marsh, admittedly injury sort of interfered a few times, but I think with Sean Marsh, they'd sort of say, yes, he has, and then they'd say, no, he hasn't. And so they became quite ambivalent about whether Sean Marsh fits or he doesn't fit. So in the end, nobody still knows because he hasn't really been uh, tested or given that extended period of time uh, of whether he is the player that's going to take us to Everest or whether he's not. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think a classic for me, I, I think a lot of players have been badly handled, badly managed. Uh, but Nathan Lyon, he, he's, to me, um, he's taken over 200 wickets. He's Australia's best off spinner ever. Ever. The GOAT. Um, and fantastic team man. Mm. So just don't go on his bowling, but obviously that's why he's mainly in the team. Mm. He can bat, he can field. Mm. But the treatment of him, to me, is. They're looking been for an wonderful. excuse to drop him. He, he plays a. Justin Langer always felt that in our side that he had to perform every game, otherwise he was out. Yes. He always felt he was on the tightrope. Yeah. Now, for Justin, that was tremendous ammunition for him to play because that was a bit of the makeup of his character. For, for Nathan Lyon, I think it's completely the flip side. The more that he's on the tightrope, the less he performs. And so, again, individuals can't be guaranteed this, but there's no question about that. But you've got to understand how to manage people. And who manages those people? It's the head coach. It's not the selectors. All the selectors' job is is to understand where we're going, what sort of skill sets we need, where are the individuals at, and support captain or coach. Now, as I say, I'd get rid of them because I don't think you need them. It's captain and coach back to all the other coaches and collectively they'll understand where players are at and how you move in and out. And, of course, you just also mentioned about players missing out and either returning back into their domestic teams. I mean, I've had conversations recently because I've, I've been on this bandwagon a little bit around selection and what it should look like. I've had the opportunity to talk to a few old mates who are coaches around the countryside and, and they would just echo the same thoughts. They have no idea why selections are being made or not being made and then they have no feedback about when players return, what should be being done, how do we actually readjust this, how do we send them back. So poor system. Needs addressing. Uh, as I said earlier, I, I just would have assumed it would be more sophisticated than that. A sport that's got such a high profile. And as I've already said, I have established that belief that for some players, they're looking for a reason to pick them. And for some players, they're looking for a reason to drop them. And, and you haven't done anything to change that opinion. I mean, for Sean Marsh, for example, he is my hobby horse. He's probably a lovely guy, but, but he, he's my hobby horse in terms of selection. I mean, who else would be tipped to be in the side after not being in the side last summer? 
because he scored 60-odd in an inter-squad game the other day, which is what we heard of him coming out of India. I mean, no one else. That wouldn't happen to Joe Burns and it wouldn't happen to Kawaja or, or no, Callum I, Ferguson. Coming back to what I was saying, I can only assume, but that's where it hasn't been properly communicated, mm. that when they picked Sean Marsh, they did believe that he had the whole skill set to take them where they wanted to be. So therefore, when he's injured, they're always going to try and bring him back into the side. If he's not scoring runs, they'll back him because they know that he's actually going to deliver. That would be my view on the reasons why he keeps coming in and out of the side. But it's more for the head coach, that's what I'd say, Darren Lehman, come out and explain why this constant selection of Sean Marsh so that everybody understands and the media can get off Sean Marsh's back or, conversely, get on Sean Marsh's back mm. uh, because this is his role and where we see him, what we see him doing into the future. Well, what's your opinion? Should he be that guy that they, they've backed? Look, he's, he is a, there's no question he's a talented player and he shows that every so often. His issue is about consistency and that's the one thing that he hasn't learned in his career. So again, going back to our game changes and all those sorts of things, cost-benefit analysis. At the moment, it would suggest that head coach and selectors believe the benefits of him being in the side are outweighing the costs of him being in the side. That's why he's being picked. I spoke about what mystifies me about your lack of, of figure in the game, considering what you've achieved. But I, I'm guessing that's not the case in the corporate sector. You're a leadership consultant now, much like I am. I think we probably play in different circles though. You must be a man in demand when it comes to speaking about leadership and working with people, working with teams and organizations. Is business booming for you? Oh, look, I think it's like all small business. I'm a small businessman. I think it ranges from being extremely busy to, you know, you're wondering, well, what's going to happen tomorrow? Where's the next gig? That's right. And I think, one, there are a lot of people out there that play in this sort of coaching leadership area. Not many of them coached Australia for, for eight years. No, of course. But there are big players out there, you know, so the KPMGs, mm. the PWCs, the Deloitte's, et cetera, um, who really occupy significant space they in, do. Your, in your ASX hundreds and other big family businesses and so on. And I think also that it's still about, you know, the marketing and how do you get your name there. They might know John Buchanan, but, oh, he's a career coach. Oh, that's great. But how's that going to help our business? Yeah. You know. So I think there's a constant battle, constant challenge there to promote what it is you do, but how relevant it is to the business. So mm -hmm. go back to Simon Sinek, you know, the golden circle. So why... What, how? Generally, oh, sorry, why, how, what? So generally, what is it that John Buchanan does? Oh, well, he's all about peak performance. Oh, that's really good. How does he do it? Oh, he's got this program. Okay, that's really good. So why would we want him? Simon Sinek tips it on the other way. way. So you've got to have a purpose. They've got to understand why. Why is he going to help our business? Why does he bring something different to anybody else? What's his fundamental purpose? How does that align with our business? So if we can make the why, which is marketing, it's selling, it's social media, it's word of mouth, it's referrals and so on. It's all that sort of stuff. So constantly just feeding that in. And as I said, I mean, I think in what I do, because it is about trying to take lessons of sport and what I've learned over time and placing it in the, in the corporate world, there is a, a, a good understanding from most people, whether they like sport or they don't, they kind of get the sporting analogies, you know, then it's about actually now, well, how's that going to impact on our business? And I, I really think in business at the moment, I mentioned before, I think there's a, a real lack of coaching in business. We talk about even coaching in sport, where it should be. Mm -hmm. 
but coaching and business, I think, is one of the areas that that's hugely undervalued, undermanned present time. So what is the why for your clients? When mm. clients hire you and, and you're the right hire for them, because we know that that's not always the case in a consulting relationship, when you get it right with a client, what's their why? The why, and it, it brings me back to a point I was going to make uh, previously, is that what I see happening now, and it, it's happening in sport, is that there's a real short-termism about your business or about your sport. So it's about survival. So if, if I'm going to invest in somebody or something or a product, it's got to actually almost impact on my bottom line today. Yeah, yeah. In sport, if we're going to bring in a coach, we need wins, you know. Immediately. We, we, we're not into this long-term program because we need wins now because that's about memberships, it's about sponsors. It's about us all keeping our job. Keeping our job and a bit about the ego if it's a franchise and owned by an owner, you know. So I think that's a, a real issue for us as consultants, because unless you're actually delivering something that you can show immediately impacts the bottom line, and you've got a lot of data and back up to that, then it's a bit of a harder sell. I believe it's there. I think we're gradually gathering some data that will show it there. I'm involved with a group. We've got our thing called RPM 360, which is going back to what we were saying before. One is if you ask about the why for a company, well, the stuff around staff engagement. If we if we can have a, a staff that um you know want to come to work every day and actually try and give their their best every day, then in theory that should roll on to profitability or market share or whatever it might be. So for me, it's about therefore coming back to the athlete, trying to get them to be their own best coach, trying to understand when you have a PB, when you have your best day. Well, what did I do? And if I can understand that, then I've got every chance of replicating that the next day and the next day. So. But of course, I sit within a team and uh, who's leading my team? The team leader. So does that team leader give me every encouragement? Does he understand? She? So that's the coaching. So to drive the personal best performance, I really need a coach that understands coaching and gives me the responsibility to do that. And then, of course, then we can wrap it all up, you know, because as we know, even in sport, we mentioned batting, bowling, feeling. So there are teams within a team, the Australian cricket team, was a team within the broader Cricket Australia network. So I need to get all the teams working so that the overall team is going to benefit. Yeah. So very important that to do any of that, the board or the CEO, the, the upper level of management really understand that process and, and want to buy into that process because it isn't going to be the quick fix. It isn't the silver bullet that's going to change things around quickly, but it is something that will actually build sustainability over a period of time. You mentioned a lot of really interesting things there, but one of the one that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment is leaders finding time and understanding the skills that it takes to be a coach for the people who are in their team. It's very tempting in cubicle world to stay behind your desk and you almost feel like to get up and walk around those cubicles and lean over someone's desk and have a conversation that that wasn't scheduled as a meeting in meeting room B. It actually takes a lot of courage. And I observe leaders not doing that as much as they could. As you say, coaching is missing from society. It's not just in sport, it's in business as well. And it takes a lot of courage for a leader to get up out of their chair and, and go and be a coach. So one of the very important things about leadership that you mentioned there, John, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I could talk to you all day, quite obviously, as, a, as both a cricket tragic and someone deeply interested in leadership. You are, as I say, right in the wheelhouse for this, this podcast. But look, I'm going to finish off with four very quick questions. I always finish 
with the same questions. John, tell me about the Saturday night you would most prefer. Big party, lots of people you know, or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? The latter. I, I would have guessed that. <laughs> Are you more likely to get caught daydreaming or bogged down in the detail? These days, I, I get caught down in too much detail, but I'm a, I'm a daydreamer. When I'm daydreaming, I'm in my best place. Right. Do you make decisions based on emotion or are you a slave to rational thought? I think I'm a thinker. I, I, I try to avoid emotion, although it's very much a part of coaching. And what about the last one? You're going on a road trip. Do you plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car and drive? Well, you'd think what I've just said before, where I think and I plan everything out, but I'm terrible. And if I go on trips, I'm uh, almost, let's let it flow and see how we go, see where we go. I'm, I'm known at home as Father Griswold. I think I knew the answer to that because of that albatross story <laughs> yes. you told in New Zealand. John Buchanan, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Very good. Thanks, Dave. Much appreciate. <laughs> And that was the final part of my conversation with John Buchanan. It was a real privilege to have him on the show, and I enjoyed it every bit as much as I thought I would. As far as many fans of the game are concerned, and the pure numbers back it up, John is the most accomplished coach to have ever led not just the Australian cricket team, but any professional sporting team in the country. He's a deep thinker, calm, measured, dignified, and honest. And he's someone who just happens to love the topic of leadership as much as I do. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with John on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.